0: Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper,
1: and I'm Mary Mate. How are you, Katie? Good. You? I'm well.
0: Well, you know what? I got to share with people, share with the Useful Idiots fam, that last week I saw a great Roger Waters concert. Friend of show, Roger Waters, saw him at Madison Square Garden. It was a great show. It was pretty cool. He had a. Uh, it was just an ex- incredible experience. I never thought I'd live to see uh, Julian Assange's name on in big lights on Madison Square Garden. Not on the marquee, obviously, but in the actual uh, inside. Uh, Shereen Abu Akhle also, he had the names of lots of martyrs and activists and heroes, different people's faces. Of course, there was the music, the um, poetic music. It was just a great show. I highly recommend if anyone lives in a place where that tour is headed, it's called the This Is Not a Drill, that they get tickets to see Roger Waters. It was a great show.
1: I was so bummed to miss it. And I'm even more bummed because he's coming to Vancouver where I am right now, but I have to leave a few days before he gets here. So I'm missing him coast to coast. Wow. It's almost
0: like you're intentionally trying not to see Roger Waters. (laughs) Wow.
1: Absolutely not. No, Roger has been amazing. Uh, And uh, he's been just the stances he takes and the flack he gets for them. He's such an inspiration. And uh, I've I've only heard just the ravest of reviews about the show so yeah
0: it was really excellent
1: if you can catch it go check it out and
0: yeah. you know what's interesting i talked about this so your co-grays owner max lumenthal and i did a uh we ran into each other at the roger waters concert didn't know that we were going to be there we ran into each other and then we caught up and we decided to do a review a little reaction to um joe biden's speech that he gave last week which you can catch on I guess on the the gray zone and also on the Katie helper show, youtube.com slash the Katie helper show. But while Max and I were talking about Biden's weird speech and the very weird lighting, I realized that it reminded me of another uh, visual. And uh, Wilson, I sent you an image if you could just show this because as people know, probably um, Joe Joe Biden gave his weird, um, what's it called, Dark Brandon uh, speech. There was this really weird red lighting. I realized that uh, Biden, Unironically, his set, his lighting choice was very similar to Roger Waters' uh, lighting choice when he plays this kind of fascistic uh, character uh, in a black leather jacket who has, uh, whose political party is, you know, a set of hammers. Um, But of course, one is intentionally being fascistic and one is pretending to stand in the way of fascism. So Mm. I did a little Who Wore It Better side by side between Roger Waters and Joe Biden.
1: Well, for those who believe that Joe Biden is kind of like a rock star, he has that status. This is uh, this is some proof of that, really. Yeah, even without
0: the aviators, even when he's just squinting in the darkness as he was in that speech, which is really weird.
1: Well, that's a great segue to our four food groups, because I have Democrats suck. And for Democrats suck, I chose this Joe Biden speech. So let's see a clip.
2: I will not stand by and watch. I will not. The will of the American people be overturned by wild conspiracy theories and baseless evidence-free claims of fraud. I will not stand by and watch elections in this country stolen by people who simply refuse to accept that they lost.
1: All right. So this was a major theme of Biden's speech, that he is standing up to people who spread wild conspiracy theories and refuse to accept that they lost elections and uh, claim those elections are stolen from them. And as he is referring to Trump, he's being accurate. That is a fair characterization of Trump. The problem is, though, he's leaving out an entire other political faction, which is his own. And his own political faction in two consecutive elections has spread wild conspiracy theories about Russia. Uh, first with 2016, which was Hillary Clinton, where instead of accepting that her own dysfunctions uh, played a major role in her loss. She blamed everybody, including Russia, and even claimed that the election was stolen. So here's a clip of that.
2: You can run the best campaign. You can even become the nominee. And you can have the election stolen from you.
1: So that's Hillary Clinton saying that the election was stolen from her, exactly what Joe Biden was claiming to be decrying. And the thing is, not only in the case of Democrats and Hillary, did they spread conspiracy theories about their opponent, they paid for them. The Clinton campaign funded the Steele dossier, which is the most, which is like the wildest collection of conspiracy theories in American political history. It's a series of claims that the president is a Russian asset and compromised by a, tea, a pee tape. There's nothing more wild than that. And so Biden, as like painting himself to be the opponent of these uh, of this wild behavior, he's really leaving out a huge side of the story, which is his own side. And that happened again in 2020. When Biden's camp this time took the Russiagate playbook and then spread the wild conspiracy theory that Hunter Biden's laptop was really just Russian disinformation and uh, even got the the tech giants like Facebook, as Mark Zuckerberg recently admitted, to censor stories about that. So we have a problem where both sides are accusing the other of engaging in wild conspiracy theories when both sides are guilty of pretty much the exact same thing.
0: Right. Also, something that Max and I brought up uh, when we were reviewing this video, this this uh, Biden speech, is that what about people who say that the two thousand election was was stolen?
1: Mm, that's a are good point. Are we
0: conspiracy theorists? I yeah. mean, are we people who are election deniers? I wish that Joe, uh, that uh, Al Gore, had been a, an election denier <laughs> in two thousand. He should have yeah. been. He should have stood up against yeah. the what the Supreme Court did against the what happened in Florida. So yeah, it's something
1: else. That's so, a great point. Yeah, yeah that, that's a great point. So if you don't accept the outcome of a vote that automatically makes you an election denier, well, that would then mean that we accept that George W. Bush was the rightful winner in, two, in 2000. And all those weeks of protests and uh mobilization around that were really just conspiracy theories. That's a really yeah. good point.
0: Yeah. So, well, for a Republican suck, uh, we're going to, we spoke about this last week a bit, uh, the uh, water crisis that's happening in Jackson, Mississippi, where um, 150,000 people are without drinking water. So luckily their water pressure has been restored, but uh, it's not looking that great because there's still an order to boil water to make it safe to drink Uh, that remains in place. And uh, here's a little announcement that came from Republican Governor Tate Reeves, uh, in case you guys are wondering about what could happen moving forward.
2: Second question, if you would be supportive of any privatization efforts of the Jackson Water System, you talked about your concerns about the management from from the city.
1: I'm open to um, all
2: options. Privatization is on the table
0: so there you have it um privatizing the waters on the table and that is always works out really well whenever you privatize water that's a great thing i mean just look at flint michigan
1: absolutely it's crazy how uh after every single uh natural disaster republicans their first response is let's just privatize everything the same thing happened with katrina where they somehow decided that a good response to hurricane katrina was to privatize the school system right. in yeah, the shock new orleans action. Right. along with many other uh, essential services. And that's the only thing that their brains can go to when there's a calamity facing the resident. Let, let's find a way to profit off of this and right. take it out of the public's hands. By the way, I mean, we could do a Tate Reeves suck just every single week. I mean, he's, we he could, makes a yeah. constant appearance. True. He's also the guy who returned money to the federal government rather than help renters in his state uh, pay their rent. Uh, because he didn't want to have freeloaders or whatever right. he said.
0: I think anyone who was having trouble paying their rent should camp out in front of his house.
1: And, you know, and, and also, by the way, when there, whenever there's a natural disaster, there's some kind of thing where you have to wear some kind of vest.
0: I know. To like, make it look anyone like... Anyone believes you're... like you're out there doing anything.
1: Exactly. To make it look yeah. as if you're taking part in the relief effort. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. pretty tacky.
0: Yeah, it really is terrible.
1: All right. Well, yeah. Tate Reeves sucks once Tate again. Reeves.
0: This week and Tate Reeves sucks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 And that
0: hair is ridiculous. Yeah. Hey, I'm allowed to make fun of it because he has it. <laughs> I think that's real. It's either a toupee or a terrible hair. that's natural. So I'm only allowed to make fun of it if it's natural. So let's hope it's really his hair. Not fingers, crossed. Yeah, fingers, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah,
1: yeah All right. So for isn't that weird? We're going to return back to Democrat land. And, um, you know, right now, Donald Trump's in the news, as always, even though he's the former president, we talk about the former president way more than we do the current president. That's just how it is. And so the current controversy with Trump is, of course, the Mar-a-Lago raid. And uh, he actually recently won a court victory in getting a special master to review all the documents that were seized from him. And that's going to lead to a long protracted dispute that will ensure we're talking about Trump and documents for a long time to come, which is uh, great news for everybody who doesn't care about actual issues like people in this country not having drinking water in in Mississippi. But anyway, so right now uh, there's all the speculation about what the documents contain. The Washington Post just came out with a story saying once again that they're related to nuclear secrets. But Joy Reid of MSNBC has a particularly uh, unique theory on what is in those documents and what might have resulted from Trump having them.
2: We know that um, in 2021 um, that there was a rash of deaths of American spies. They were being caught. They were being killed because this, this is a very real and exigent circumstance. Um, and the CIA has admitted to that now. And I, we are not saying that we know that there is some connection between the purloin documents and that and those events. But they did happen at a time when Trump did have custody of some really sensitive information that he shouldn't have had. You know, you think about that, you think about Victor Vesselberg, who's being investigated for something else, for fraud, but he's a, you know, Russian oligarch, sort of Trump in crony world. His house recently got raided, his yacht got seized. He's being investigated for something totally different. But Trump knows the kinds of people who one might want to investigate, who might want to do bad things to the United States and might not be on our side, And I wonder how frustrated you think law enforcement must be knowing that they can't look into any of that.
0: Wow, I'm frustrated.
1: Yeah, you're frustrated?
0: I'm frustrated for law enforcement.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I I love that. She's like, I'm not saying that we know for sure that Trump got all these CIA informants killed. I'm just saying is that it could have happened because he had these secrets when they got killed. So, you know, I'm just saying, uh, uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink.
0: Also, I'm not saying that he's friends with people who want to do bad things to America. No, I am saying that. Like, wh- what does she even? S- so, look out for that too. Like, I don't even. What her net is pretty fucking wide here. Very
1: wide net. Yeah, it's very a very wide very net. wide net. And uh, look, I mean, the uh, the most plausible reason for all the CIA informants being killed are uh, caught. Is that the CIA is pretty inept and they have a history of burning sources uh, and getting people uh, caught. That's just what happens. Um, And you can see from some of the people who now are paid as intelligence analysts on MSNBC and CNN why the CIA was so inept and why people have gotten caught. Because these people are not very bright and they're not very competent in the sense that they've been pushing moronic conspiracy theories about. Russia and Trump being compromised by Russia and then about Russian bounties in Afghanistan, if you remember that one, and then about Havana syndrome where Russia or Cuba or China were like beaming laser beams and giving U.S. diplomats brain injuries. So you can see just based on the quality of the analysis that we're getting from these former intelligence officials who now work for MSNBC, why when they were in government and working in these posts, why they might have been not so competent and why they might have compromised their own people.
0: Wow. That is fucking weird. Weird (laughs) indeed. Yeah. All right. Well, for, isn't that terrible? I have something that's, uh, Donald Trump related as well. Um, you know, it's a a terrible world we live in when the thing that, uh, the, isn't that terrible involves Trump, but he's not the terrible. So I was looking at Twitter as is my want and lo and behold, I kind of couldn't believe it that the Rosenbergs were trending. Now, uh, Not sure if people know who the Rosenbergs are, but they, uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, they were a couple. They were um, executed under Eisenhower at the height of the Cold War. Uh, They were executed in uh, 1953. They were US citizens and they were convicted on spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. Uh, What's really disturbing is that they basically, the United States knew that Ethel Rosenberg was innocent of the things that they were charging her with, but they tried to use her as leverage to get Julius Rosenberg to confess. They thought that would work. They had two kids at the time. Neither one confessed. They were both executed, orphaning their two kids, Michael and Robert. Interesting story is that Michael and Robert were then adopted by Abel Mirapol. Abel Mirapol, by the way, wrote the the poem Strange Fruit, which was immortalized by uh, Billie Holiday. That, amazing anti-lynching song. Anyway, that's kind of neither here nor there. Just interesting history about it. But the Rosenbergs, the execution of the Rosenbergs was something that anyone who's on the right side of history looks at as a bad thing. Like that is a dark chapter in McCarthyism. And, uh, you know, you didn't have to be a communist, loving, lefty, pinko Jew to think that. The Pope uh, was opposed to the execution of the Rosenbergs. Uh, it was a kind of a, a scandal. A lot of people appealed to, um, to Eisenhower to stop it. Albert Einstein, for instance. It really is a dark chapter in American history. And uh, because people uh, have brainworms, apparently, you have all these people who were tweeting on Twitter about the Rosenbergs because they wanted what happened to the Rosenbergs to happen to Donald Trump. So you have this gem of a person who tweeted... The same thing we did to the Rosenbergs uh, and has a picture of Julius Rosenberg next to uh, uh, Donald Trump. It says Julius Rosenberg was executed on June 19th, 1953 for giving nuclear secrets to the Russians. And then it has underneath it, hashtag orange Julius, get it? Orange Julius, that's a drink. And uh, they think that the execution of Julius Rosenberg is a funny and also something that should be uh, emulated and a time that should be looked back towards as something good and something that should be done to Trump.
1: But Katie, you have to give credit to a good play on words. At least I do. And Orange yep. Julius, something I'm calling it's pretty good. It's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, it's
0: pretty, 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 yeah. pretty good, yeah. It's
1: good. If you there's, should, talent. There's, there's talent. There's talent behind there. that. Yeah, yeah, there if is. They, if they could apply that to
0: something less evil than glorifying the execution of the of the rosenbergs and i'd be here for it uh if you i just can't
1: deny that talent i cannot deny that yeah
0: yeah if you scroll down from my tweet there you'll see another tweet i quote tweeted uh michael beschloss who is a uh a a historian presidential historian he's often on uh msnbc i've made fun of his hair and i can do that because it's real but he thought it would be a good idea to tweet. I guess he was ahead of the curve. He tweeted back on August 11th, Rosenbergs were convicted for giving U.S. nuclear secrets to Moscow and were executed June 1953. Apropos of nothing. It's not like this was a anniversary of their execution. And shout out to Ben Norton, who tweeted below that, uh, liberals showing they oppose Trumpist authoritarianism by dot, 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 praising McCarthy authoritarianism and execution of communists two sides of the same fascist coin. And that is exactly true. And it is a very scary moment indeed when you have people who are presenting themselves as liberals and presenting themselves as defenders of the rule of law, pointing back and looking back with fondness at the execution of the Rosenbergs, which again was something condemned by uh, many people across the world uh, in fact, you know, it's interesting, the um, the all black labor union, the International Longshoremen's Association, Local 968, stopped working for a day in protest also. So this was uh, not a good look. And I can't believe we have to lecture people who claim to be the champions of freedom, democracy and uh, the best of that the U.S. has to offer, that the execution of the Rosenbergs is not something you should be hyping up. I can't believe it isn't that fucking terrible
1: it's terrible i have a follow-up question how does orange julius hold up these days are people still drinking it because i remember it was it had a pretty unique taste and i just looked it up i'm sorry kid not that i i don't want to downplay the seriousness you should invite of the,
0: this guy into the show the guy who tweeted it
1: out well i'd love to talk to him about his his, his, his pun creative process yeah yeah but, but orange julius i just looked up the beverage is a mixture of ice orange juice sweetener milk powdered egg whites and van and vanilla flavoring. And I remember as a kid having mixed feelings about it. There was a time when I liked it, but then another point I think as I grew into a young man, a young a young adult where I I didn't like it anymore. So I am wondering what is the market for Orange Julius? Are people still drinking it? Share your feedback. I I'd, I'd love to know because I'd love to know how it holds up. I'm going to go try to find it because I'd love to uh, I'd love to taste and and it now and see how it holds up.
0: Yeah, see how it holds up. Made a really taste of America.
1: Mhm yeah
0: but yeah use the hashtag useful idiots pod and let us know check let us know your thoughts on orange julius i remember liking the name i thought it was a cool name this was before this pun game changer pun but i remember as a kid i thought it sounded kind of like magical
1: Mm. yeah and i'm wondering now if trump does get tried for treason for violating the espionage act which liberals are supposed to cheer now because it's being used against trump and also julian assange uh will orange julius the drink take off in solidarity yeah
0: well, you know what I would like to have come back more, although I guess they never went anywhere, but we should make little Cheeto Mussolini's. We should make little puff cheese doodles. Yes. Cheese doodles shaped like Mussolini. That's and a
1: great, yeah. So many marketing opportunities. So many with, marketing uh, opportunities, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: But it's just so funny because Roy Cohn obviously was a big friend, good friend of, of uh, Donald Trump. And he also was prosecuted uh, the Rosenbergs. You're basically being Trumpian by siding against the Rosenbergs, everyone. Absolutely. I don't know how to break it to you, yeah.
1: Yeah, so the real Orange Julius is the person who came up with the term Orange Julius.
0: Right, more yeah. like Julius Caesar, like mm-hmm. a dictator. Hey, Aaron, you know, I I got used to the uh, the Coquise still sing this great children's book uh, written by Karina Gonzalez that used to perch behind you like a little frog like a little cookie perching behind you, uh, crouching behind you. But I see a new book behind you. What is this? The Myth of Normal? What's that?
1: Well, I'm in Vancouver visiting my family, and my dad, Gabor Mate, has a new book out. It's called The Myth of Normal, and it comes out uh, Tuesday, September 13th. It's co-authored by my brother, Daniel Mate, and uh, it's, uh, look, I'm biased, but I think it's great, and it's, uh, it's a book about how we have a very toxic culture and that toxic culture gets in the way of people's uh well-being and their healing and uh, the book is full of insights on how to deal with that and navigate your way through it and i think it's a very uh from what i've read so far it's wonderful
0: wow i wonder if we can get an appearance
1: i can put a word in
0: yeah can you put in a good word i can try we have some more terrible for you guys and this is terrible is in the form of uh of a stone moment, we usually bring you a stone moment of a candidate doing something stoned, acting-ish uh, from the United States. But we're going to cast and t- take a page from uh, the great Joy Ann Reed. We're going to cast a wider net. Uh, we're going to cast our net across the pond and uh, take a look at what incoming UK Prime Minister Liz Truss had to say when she was asked about um, uh, nuclear using nuclear weapons.
1: Now, look, here's another a question. One of the first things, and very briefly if I could, one of the first things that will happen when and if you, you become prime minister, you'll be ushered into a room very privately at number 10. Will be laid out in front of you what are called the letters of last resort. Your orders to our Trident boat captain on whether you, prime minister Liz Truss, is giving the order to unleash our nuclear weapons. It would mean global annihilation. I won't ask you, would you press the button? You will say yes. But faced with that task, I would feel physically sick.
2: How does that thought make you feel? I think it's an important duty of the prime minister. I'm ready to do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hurrah, hurrah.
1: Let's all cheer for a nuclear holocaust.
0: Yeah, let's do it, guys. That's how I like my lady boss feminists glass ceiling shattering that glass ceiling with a nuclear blast
1: i love how he had to remind her that he asked her how triggering a nuclear holocaust would make her feel and the fact that she didn't answer the question suggests that she doesn't care that she's a sociopath i know right well that's and that's
0: and that's what we need that is i mean feminism means that we have women sociopaths lady sociopaths just like men sociopaths yeah. In office.
1: Yeah. And you know, the way he framed the question, the way he first asked, it sounded to me like he was talking about her being led into like a romantic dinner. He's like, Yeah, I know. You walk we into are. a room. There's a spread. It's a darkened room. There's a spread. It's beautifully spread out. I was like, Oh, is he maybe talking about a date? You know, what yeah. an ideal day but no date with destiny. The day with destiny. It turned very dark very quickly. Yeah. So yeah. That's one date I wouldn't want to be on. Yeah,
0: definitely not. Yeah. Well, I'd rather I'd want to be on that date if I could replace her, because I wouldn't call for i wouldn't pull the press the button
1: and that's why katie i would vote for you over you. her for uk prime minister unfortunately like something like eighty thousand conservative party members decided who will be the uk prime minister which is like i don't know like a fraction like 0. 0.101 like whatever is like a very small tiny percentage of the country just decides who right. the next prime minister is
0: they don't that's why we had to break off from them because they don't understand yeah. democracy the way we do
1: that's right yeah,
0: It could learn a lot from us.
1: Well, that is all terrible. That, that is, is all terrible,
0: terrible. Yeah.
1: yeah. But luckily, we had the antidote in our guest today, the wonderful Katrina Van Heuvel, who is the publisher and editorial director of The Nation. We had her on uh, in the early weeks of Russia's invasion. So we're going to check back in with her on her thoughts on the state of that war today, more than six months in. And also her reflections on Mikhail Gorbachev, the uh, late leader of the Soviet Union who passed away recently, uh, and he was a friend of Katrina Van and her late husband, Stephen F. Cohen. So we're going to hear from her on her reflections on Gorbachev's life and legacy.
0: Let's go to Katrina. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to talk to you. you. And uh, we want to ask you about a bunch of things, but starting off with the death um, life and legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev, who's someone that you knew. How did you know him and what are your thoughts on his uh, legacy?
3: Important question. Um, he, um, my late husband, Steve Cohen, met him at the uh, Soviet embassy in Washington in 1987 when Gorbachev f- came to this country. You're too young to remember, but he kind of jumped out of doors, onto streets in Washington, and he was welcome in a way no previous Soviet leader had ever been welcome. And Steve had written a book about Nikolai Bukharin, who was one of Stalin's victims in 1938 in the purges, the show trials. And Gorbachev had read this book on vacation in the early 80s before it was published in Russia, inside Russia, in Samizdat, Tamizdat. And it helped influence him in thinking about a direction of a country that wasn't a Stalinist direction. It was kind of democratic socialism, market socialism. In any case, Gorbachev met Steve in 87. He said, you're not Steve Cohen because you're too young. And only serious people, older people, write books like this. But we st- Steve stayed in touch. But very quickly in 1985, we couldn't get, Steve and I couldn't get visas separately together for three years because of Steve's handling of dissident books carrying around Solzhenitsyn. A week after Gorbachev came to power in March 1985, we got visas for the first time, and we lived in Moscow from 85 to 91, four months a year. We got to know Gorbachev after he left power, which was in 1991, when the Soviet Union was abolished. We can talk about that. And Yeltsin became president in one of the first fair elections in 1,000 years in the Soviet Union. But we saw quite a bit of Gorbachev in 92 and on, and in, um, after he left power. And we continued to admire him as a great reformer in a tormented country, understanding that many Russians didn't feel that way. He presided over two very important domestic reforms, one called perestroika, which was opening up the markets, in a sense, the economy. Uh, Glasnost was something he fully embraced. It was reform rolling back seven decades of censorship. And he cared so much about Glasnost that he invested in the creation of a new newspaper called Novaya Gazeta New Newspaper, which the um, editor of which presided over the funeral procession the other day and received the Nobel Peace Prize as did Gorbachev. He received it in 1990 and Muratov Dmitri received it just at the end of last year. I think the most important thing about Gorbachev I've come to feel is his view of nuclear weapons, his view of an arms race, the perils of an arms race. He was the most radical arms reductionist to ever occupy the Kremlin, a heretic in that way. He believed in the abolition of nuclear weapons, which nearly came to pass in Reykjavik in 1986 with Reagan. But he did preside over, I believe, the end of two nuclear classes, the intermediate nuclear forces and another. And he came to believe that there was an alternative to the militarized NATO construct. And he was, I think, stabbed in the back by those who betrayed him in the belief that NATO would not move one inch eastward after the end of the Soviet Union, uh, at, at the end of uh, the reunification of Germany. And it did It moved very far eastward. But uh, just to end, Gorbachev really was a kind of heretic in not a religious way, but in a way of taking on conformist thinking orthodoxies and trying to create what he believed was a, it's kind of a subversive word, a more peaceful world. He hated war, he hated violence, and there could have been much more bloodshed in the breakup, the ending, the liquidation of the Soviet Union as a result. There was some bloodshed in Georgia, in, I think it was Lithuania, in the Baltics in early 90s, but... Nothing like what could have been.
0: And can you explain for people who are listening? Because I think a lot of people uh, don't who witnessed it don't fully understand it. And then, of course, a lot of our listeners didn't witness it. But how the Soviet Union actually ended, what Gorbachev wanted to happen, and what wound up happening?
3: Yep, um, I've been reading the last the speeches at the last Supreme Soviet in, in, in end of August 1991. Steve spent a lot of time studying all the literature. He considered it, as some do, the question of the centuries, the Vapros, or the question of questions. There is no question that the um, coup in August, middle August 1991, accelerated the centrifugal forces. But there was a possibility of maintaining a loose confederation, a kind of um, humane... Russia, there's a debate about it. I don't believe it's an empire. It's a multi-eth- multi-ethnic country. There are many explanations as to why it ended. One is that the elites of the republics wanted to separate. Uh, the other is that the economy was failing and there was separation. In many ways, what happened is you had, and I don't believe in great men, not great men theory of history, but you had in Gorbachev a man, person committed to reform, and you had in Yeltsin a person committed to power. And the clash on the Supreme Soviet stage in that those very brutal, uh, anarchic and crazy sessions from like August 23rd to 29th. The, re- the resolution, the legislation to end the Soviet Union, to end the Union, not accept the Union Treaty was passed. Um, but then what happened at the end of the year is that three men Yeltsin, the leader of Ukraine and Belarus, went into a forest. It, I mean, I'm not making this up. the Yeltsin's forest and signed a decree abolishing the Soviet Union. So at that point, everything just and, you know, you see lineaments of this in Ukraine. I mean, Gorbachev was partly Ukrainian, he had Ukrainian relatives. His wife did, too. So many Russians do. And certainly Western Ukraine was moving out. But with the exception of the three Baltic countries, I think there was a possibility of a loose confederation that, you know, Putin is said to have said the great greatest geopolitical tragedy. There are those who've really gone back and I need to do this gone back. I mean, whether it matters or not, but he said one of the great, not the greatest. But for many Russians, when Gorbachev died, There was a bitterness about the ending of the Soviet Union, because there was a sense not of communism, but of cradle to grave welfare state, of um, memory and nostalgia. And what they got instead was, as we know, and he's been kind of omitted from the obituaries of Gorbachev in the last days, Yeltsin. It goes from Gorbachev to Putin. The Yeltsin era was acclaimed in this country, But it looted a country and created a predator oligarchical class. The rates of poverty and impoverishment in Russia were much greater than ours during the Great Depression. I mean, it was a... And so what happened was Gorbachev gets linked with Yeltsin. And that's where it stands until Putin comes in and restores the state. But there was a bitterness about the destruction of the state On the other hand, and I'll stop, you see the procession of those going to mourn Gorbachev the other day. Many of them are people who lived in that time, glasnost perestroika. And um, I don't know if it was fully everyone online was there to rebuke Putin. But there was a sense of certainly with Dmitry Muratov holding the picture and that newspaper has gotten shut down as of yesterday. There's no reason Putin would have come to the viewing and there is, you know, the, what, it, what I don't think Gorbachev wanted a state funeral. Yeltsin, of course, got a big state funeral. And you can read into those kinds of things. But Gorbachev lived in a clinic for the last months of his life. He uh, spoke out as he could about the arms race and war. He did turn away from news. He was reading Pushkin. And um, his family lived in Germany. Uh, He didn't really see much of them. And his wife, he loved so much, who he's buried next to in the famous cemetery, died in 1999. And her health was severely impaired by the coup when the family was held in exile in Crimea for four or five days. And she had a stroke, which is known, partly because she worried that they would be treated like the Romanovs. So she never recovered from. Hmm.
1: The um, I haven't seen what the Russian left has been saying about. Gorbachev but I do follow the western left and the critique that I've seen of Gorbachev made since his passing is that he is responsible for at least partly for the economic collapse of the 1990s and like the like the, the image of that is that pizza hut commercial that uh-huh. he did right where he did oh, that that's commercial.
3: So interesting. I let me just say quickly I mean I think he had I mean the idea that through perestroika you could open up a society, particularly an economic system, in a few years after the decades of organizing an economy in the way it was. But the Pizza Hut ad was explicitly done to raise money for his foundation. He was in a state building for a couple years where he gathered those who had worked for him, and they put out They did conferences. We went to a few on the Cold War, how to avert a new Cold War, thinking about socialism. But then Yeltsin ousted him from the building and he bought a space and had it all done to be a think tank where there was some thinking done. But it was for that reason. Now, was it a was it a good um, image? He also did, I think, a Gucci ad. Mm. (laughs) I mean, and people went crazy. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, I think it's totally legitimate that people, you cannot eat glasnost. You know, I mean, we're looking at a debate right now about democracy and I'm looking at Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, there, you know, you people in Jackson, Mississippi in many parts of this country and the world aren't exactly feeling the benefits of democracy or the debate, democracy oh. versus authoritarianism. Right.
0: Yeah. So
3: I'm just saying that there's no question that You know, people in parts of the vast country and in republics where you had certain kinds of leaders were not feeling the benefits.
1: And um, on the issue of, uh, you know, Gorbachev securing this promise, which is absolutely clear from the archives that Western leaders uh, from the Bush administration, the George H.W. Bush administration to its counterparts in Europe promised Gorbachev that NATO would not expand one inch to the east if he allowed the Reunification of Germany, which is a huge concession by Gorbachev, because Germany, of course, was the staging ground for the most catastrophic attack on the yes. Soviet Union in its history, killed millions of people. So big concession for Gorbachev to give that up. But it wasn't, but that pledge wasn't secured in writing. Uh, it was made verbally. Now, is there a reason why he didn't get that pledge in writing? Would would that have been impossible? Is that something that these states would think, never have put down? Or, yeah. You know, yeah.
3: he was close to two. I mean, the whole framework of being close to Reagan is in and of itself hard, I think, for people to understand. But it pro- but he was close to George Shultz and to a certain extent, Baker. But there were real opponents in the administration who kind of gutted moving forward on an agreement. If he had pushed harder, I think one not so happy picture is that there was a there were friendships not not friendships but sort of collegial diplomatic relationships that emerged between Gorbachev's foreign minister Shevardnadze, and Baker and George Schultz and members of the Gorbachev team and as we know uh, there was there were abstentions and there were this and there were, I think it was Iraq 1 they kind of organized it and there was a Russian Soviet abstention. Yeah. I think it was a mistake because at home he was viewed as someone who had betrayed the promise of Russia. I know a number of business people. I wouldn't trust signing an agreement. I mean, I've been, I've just, you know, some predator types, not just business people, many kinds of, but you know, <laughs> that might've helped him at home where he said, I have an agreement and yeah. they've, Verted the agreement, I'm going to the U.N. Right. Mm-hmm. But it was trumpeted. It's in you know National Security Archives. I recommend anyone listening, watching to go to the National Security Archives run by two people who've done extraordinary work on documenting NATO. No expansion eastward, uh, Tom Blanton and his partner. They have documents. So it and Condi Rice in her memoirs talks about not one inch eastward. Of course, there's an ongoing debate. But um, there's so much vested interest now in NATO, it's impossible to get through. But he also went to the UN and gave one of the great speeches about outlining a new world, which was no NATO, but a kind of common European home, demilitarized from Vladivostok in Siberia to Lisbon in Portugal. And that got knocked out. You know, people listened to it. Surprisingly, Gorbachev remained friendly with German leaders like Helmut Kohl, and even though there is, that hist- there is that history. But I do think that, as we know, people like George Kennan, the eminent diplomat who studied Soviet Union Russia, who was no lefty, thought it was the gravest disaster leading to a Cold War. And I do think it's important that we've seen NATO history relitigated or just reworked in these last months. Because during Trump time, I, Aaron remembers this, if you said something about nato it's you know it's really working for the military industrial complex i mean you know they would say you're pro-trump
0: right
3: you know and in fact it has a long lineage of opposition sadly there was a real debate in our senate bill bradley for example and others were opposed and there there was a real movement there has not been on the deeper expansion
1: yeah a lot of democrat or a considerable amount of democratic senators voted in the late 90s against nato expansion and now it's a it was it's I think,
3: heretical it's now yeah. it's like trumpian which is a measure of how militarized our thinking has become because you know they had the soviet union at warsaw they had the warsaw they had comic-con so, so i'm walking with i'm sorry i have to walter mosley who's on our editorial board we were walking one day and he said i'm going to comic-con and I said, wait a minute, you're going to the Warsaw Pact.
0: That's
3: so funny. He said, Katrina, you need a life. I'm going to Cindy. <laughs> the Comic-Con. No, but seriously, you had no Comic-Con. You had when Comic-Con went, that is the economic. When the Warsaw Pact went, the um, NATO should have said goodbye. Anyway.
1: Did did Gorbachev ever tell you about that meeting he had with Reagan where apparently they agreed to basically abolish Pretty much all nuclear weapons but then they got oh, sabotaged if i have that story right
3: well it, and it's out there ambassador jack matlock who was very close to the reagan gorbachev uh negotiations as a former ambassador it's known and it's quite astonishing reagan did believe in abolition and of course gorbachev did they came very close and gorbachev spoke of it with great sadness and regret but part of the there were two problems one and i know there were others but Raisa Gorbachev came with her husband. Nancy didn't. Reagan come with her. So Reagan felt he couldn't stay another night in Reykjavik to continue negotiating. Oh God, so he was kind of arbitrarily cut off. Also, the advisors didn't want to leave these guys in the room alone for too long. And it's known that Reagan, a product of Hollywood, had really bought into the idea of, you know, Star Wars, The Shield. He'd read up a lot on it. So there were different myths In retrospect, Gorbachev had said that knowing it doesn't work, there were scientists and others in the apparatus who pushed him to play hard because that really broke it down, that there was no give on even testing Star Wars. One could have argued in a a Machiavellian way that let the United States keep testing it. It's not going to work. But he continued to uh, believe in abolition. Uh, as do now, you've seen the Washington, the Wall Street Journal years ago had Kissinger, I think, and Perry and Salakashvili and someone else in support. And um, we had a correspondent, we, the nation had a peace correspondent, which we need to revive. Jonathan Schell, who did a special issue oh, on yeah. information. He interviewed Gorbachev in many U.S. And it's not, It's there's a myth that you abolish tomorrow. No, you have a process. But just the intent is, by the way, written into law. It's the NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which the nuclear powers have signed and promised, and again, this is in writing, so that they will build down to aboli- you know abolition, but there are certain treaties which are not paid a lot of attention to.
1: No. Uh, and certain treaties that Trump killed... Uh, that Gorbachev and Reagan reached, like the INF treaty, absolutely, uh, which had eliminated an entire class of, of uh, nuclear weapons, and Trump killed that treaty. But that got ignored because it was inconvenient I mean, to the narrative that Trump was a Russian puppet.
3: I know, and he, you know, the infrastructure of arms control is now gutted. It's shredded. There's one remaining, START 2, which could be renewed in 2026. But you're right, Trump, open skies, yeah, and though it's clever and people say, bring your enemies closer, John Bolton. John Bolton under George W. was really responsible for abrogating, rolling back the central arms control treaty, the ABM. And he played a terrible role in the White House because Trump, this is not about Trump, but the lack of discipline and the not caring about these things. Bolton, if he's anything, is an insidious snake who knows the machinations of bureaucracy. And he did pretty good job in gutting the so it's a real danger and we look out at ukraine and Zaporizhia, yep. you got the UN, un agency in there but boy it's a it's a moment where there should be as much attention as possible to the peril the dangers and it does there's an attempt to open up so often the nuclear arena has not even been connected to the peace movement as fully as it might and the, all those acronyms turn off people and they don't right. see connection but i think there's a yeah. there is a new generation but cautious Ways that we need more boldness.
0: I was I was listening to something that uh, Steve and your late husband Stephen appeared on a panel with a bunch of diplomats, and the, he wasn't one of them. No, he was, like guess, an affirmative action. Uh, no, he was like a troublemaker, but, right? Um, they were, and, and he said something really interesting about the. The collapse of the Soviet Union and even the framing of it as the collapse—I, I, I'm paraphrasing—but he basically said that he didn't use that description because that made it seem
3: inevitable. Yeah, no, I mean it wasn't inevitable. In the same way, our CIA thought the Russian economy, the Soviet economy, was in such bad shape it would it collapsed, or that Reagan's military buildup it collapsed, or that, um, you know, different factors for the collapse. Um, the, the Soviet Union could have gone on. I mean, in fact, you know, Gorbachev comes to power in March 1985 from me after a line as, of, you know, people who were governing from hospital. The last leader, Chernyenko, literally was set up in a hospital room to vote as if he were in an election booth. And just on the eve of Gorbachev's election, the Leningrad Party secretary was going to be elected, but he gave a... A wedding party for his daughter, and used the Romanovs china, and like they threw, they were like partying like they were the Romanovs. So that didn't go down too well. In any case, um, it is not clear at all. The Soviet Union could have gone on. The economy was stagnant. People weren't living well, but it could have gone on. There was no real disaster. And so he studied all these different kind of views, and the signing in the forest was really the final moment. And there was a man who died about three months ago, Gennady Borbalis, who was a very close advisor, one of these eminence, these gray eminences, who was a very close advisor to Yeltsin. He died at about 75. He was in Kazakhstan. But he's, he's written about it, how they needed to end the Soviet Union. And this was the way they were going to do it. And it made Yeltsin the leader and opened up kind of pathways of more power as things could. But it was, you know. No, I'm not in defense of the Soviet Union, but there there was an extraordinary disruption. And as you could see with the attitude toward Gorbachev, many recount his role, though he worked hard to try and save some version of it. He, he knew it would be a disaster. And I think that's what he thought a lot about in the last months.
1: Do you think he was maybe too trusting of the West?
0: And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. You also have a piece, you have an op-ed um, at the Washington Post about, uh, called it's time for Democrats to act on a dark money ban in primaries. So can you tell people what you're? Yeah. Proposing?
3: So the DNC is meeting September 9th, and it has the right to make its own rules as a private entity. And Resolution 19 is to ban dark money, the un- disclosed the the packs, and we've seen this in this past election in primaries, so you're not fueling opposition and it's not the classic, how can we end the arms race? We were talking earlier, but how can we end the arms race when they're still doing the arms race? This is about in the primaries. So a perfect example is that you had dark money in the Jessica Cuellar, Jessica Cisneros, Henry Cuellar primary in Texas. Jessica Cisneros is a progressive, Henry Cuellar is anti-abortion, anti-labor. And but the NRA dark NRA money meeting. came in for him. We've seen APAC, uh, the American-Israeli political group, pouring money, tons of money, in defeating Donna Edwards in Maryland. Crypto people, dark money coming in in Oregon. So it's just to... At thenation.com, there is a piece about dark money and there's a take action, what you can do. You can call one of the 33... DNC delegates who are supporting this or those opposing it or the DNC chair, we give a number and an email. But it's it will make a big difference. And it is something people can do. People like Jane Kleb, who is the chair of Nebraska, I th- or is it, I'm sorry, North Dakota. How uh, bad. I think
0: Nebraska. Um, she's great.
3: Them. And she's been leading, as has uh, Representative Whitmer, who's not Governor Whitmer, but On DNC. Yeah. So I recommend people just take a quick look at thenation.com to get a sense of it and then take action. Our revolution, you know, Pramila Jayapal, Jamie Raskin, Ro Khanna, Bernie Sanders, they've all pushed
0: Jim Zogby.
3: Jim Zogby. The APAC interventions are very troubling and dangerous, potentially more dangerous. And you know, the idea that raising this, as someone said on Twitter, was anti-Semitic is ridiculous. It's just, you know, J Street, what it is inside Washington is a counter to APAC. It's you know it's not Jewish voices for peace or you know, the it's it's um I think APAC is setting up for masses of secret money, dark money coming in. Thank you for having me on. Yeah.
1: Katrina, thanks so much for Thank joining so us. Yeah. Thank you.
3: That
0: was great
1: that was great uh so good to hear from katrina that's great one of my heroes a lot to say about the topics we talk about every single week uh you know and, and interesting to get her recollections of mikhail gorbachev uh a personal take on such an important leader
0: yeah and uh read her article that she has uh, in the nation about gorbachev read her article in the washington post about uh democrats dark money follow her on twitter she's a very important voice get into the half of it but no
1: we didn't and follow us too at usefulidiots.substack.com to get bonus content and uh we'll see you next week
0: bye everyone hello thank you so much for listening to and watching useful idiots for full episodes and extended interviews please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com you can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash Useful Idiots for clips, live streams, and full tele- episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Useful Idiot Pod and use the hashtag Useful Idiots Pod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them.